All right, well, let's pray and jump into things. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study this confession, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us as we try to understand it, to evaluate it through the lens of Scripture and help us to see Scripture uh, and understand it better through the lens of the confession. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 22, and um, the subject of oaths, and it's, it's kind of... Uh, Noteworthy that there are seven paragraphs on that subject, which is something that I think many people today wouldn't uh, think called for that kind of treatment, you know, the thoroughness of it. My, my guess is that people at that time when the confession was written relied on oaths for more than maybe we do today in the sense of binding a community together and making certain that justice is done and people perform their duties I think today, maybe it's because of the way our society is organized. So much of it is sort of uh, corporate in character, you know, with management managers overseeing everything and kind of staying on top of people and stuff like that. Whereas I think at that time, there was much more of a sort of a, well, you know, we trust you. <laughs> Do your best. You know, we, we need to bind your conscience with these oaths to have some assurance that things get done the way we need them to, not, to have be done. But we're in the, the fourth uh, paragraph now. An oath is taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. That's an interesting statement. Uh, I guess there was, uh, even in those days, um, a tendency for people to uh, you know, try to squirm out of <laughs> things and, you know, sort of say that's not what I thought it meant or this is just speaking figuratively, not literally, or something like that. Maybe that's the case. Um, I cannot oblige you to sin. So there are things that, you know, put a boundary on what can be called for. Uh, but in anything not sinful being taken... It binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt. So the thought that, well, this is going to require some sacrifices, not an excuse. So this is something that, and again, I think it has to do with the fact that other people are really relying on you to do what you've promised to do. When you think about how just even, say, contracts work or maybe just uh, debt works, in our society, you've got people who enter into obligations based on the assurance that you're going to keep your promises. You know, when you had the 2008 um, subprime mortgage crisis, basically what you had is, you know, this fear of contagion. In other words, kind of everything kind of coming apart because people would, you know, uh, lend with the promise of repayment, and then based on the promise of repayment, they would use that for leverage to get something that they wanted, so they would be, in, you know, uh, get it, go into debt based on the in sort of the sense that, well, this is how we're going to pay that debt for, from the people that owe us, and then they do the same, and then they do the same, and next thing you know, you've got this big house of cards. Um, so that's, that happens, um, and I imagine this is uh, 
also, uh, you know, at work here in this situation. So, um, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels, which is uh, also worth, worth noting. Say, I don't have to keep my promises to you. You're a heretic. <laughs> no, no, you have to keep your promises because those have been made, uh, you know, in, in the form of an oath or a vow, calling God as a witness to your performance of the thing that you've promised. So it's not, there's no excuse that you can sort of, again, kind of weasel out of, out of the oath that you've made. Any thoughts on this, though? I mean, uh, it seems pretty straightforward uh, without, yeah. Brittany. Yeah, when Joshua made the promise to, I can't remember if it was Gibeon, they deceived him and lied, and they said, we are people from far away. Is he bound to keep, he kept the oath, but was he bound even though they yeah, lied in the process? That's a great question, you know, because, you know, they're, you know, engaged in a deception. Um, there's a there's a famous episode in Roman history. I can't remember if it's Scipio. Maybe not. I, but anyway, there was a there was a during the, the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, a Roman general was captured by the Carthaginians, and uh, they wanted him to uh, be a means or sort of a, an intermediary. Uh, between them, the Carthaginians, and the Romans. So they, they sent him back to uh, ask or to sue for peace, and uh, they made him promise that he would return, regardless of how the, you know, sort of the, it went. So he made his case before the Roman Senate. Romans, uh, but in the, you know, as, as he presented the, the terms of peace, he, he told the Roman Senate, don't take it wipe out the Carthaginians. <laughs> and then he went back and was tortured and killed. And that was one of the, uh, you know, people that Roman, uh, Romans looked at as, uh, you know, demonstrating integrity, Roman virtue, he kept his promise, even though it really, really hurt. <laughs> you know, but that's a fascinating thing. I can't remember who it, who it was. Anybody remember which general that was? You know, Scipio always comes to mind, but I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, in terms of like commercial, who's that? The commercial code um, involving contracts, <coughs> there's a clause in there that talks about under duress. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting as well. And uh, you brought the warfare. Um, in warfare, you have complete, and the deception is meant if it's done properly, in my view, that if it's if you're in order to protect those that you are overseeing, <coughs> that in lawful warfare, deception is yeah. I mean, yeah, you 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 see it all over the place in scripture too. But in the under the duress, that would be interesting. The example you gave in Rome, like uh, you could argue, well, he was under duress. <laughs> well. The thing, the thing with that particular example, of course, is that he didn't have to go back. He was at home, and he could have just stayed. You know, in fact, they they told him, "Don't go back." And he said, "Well, I I, I gave my word that I would," and he knew what was waiting for him. I think they, it was one. Of, I think he died in a box lined with with spikes, uh, and it was one of these situations where you know you had to stand straight, or you would you know 
being, you know, you know, punctured by one of these blades, and that's how he died. He died in the box. They were just really ingenious when it came to cruelty back in the old days, you know. Yeah. On that matter of the Gibeonites, um, that's one of the texts that the authors right. had in mind. They cite both Joshua 9 and Second uh, Samuel 21. In Second Samuel 21, it's um, about a famine that occurred during the time of David, mm -hmm. and the prophet uh, explains that it was because of Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. Mm -hmm. So God actually enforced that promise. Yeah. Well, so basically, be careful when you make a promise, give an, take an oath or a vow. You're going to be uh, accountable for it. So, next uh, paragraph, a vow is of the like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with the like religious care and to be performed with like faithfulness. So, we talked a little bit about that last time, the, different, the distinction between a vow and an oath. Um, then number six, it is not to be made to any creature but to God alone, and it may uh, be accepted, that it may be accepted, it is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty. So this gets to your point about duress, I think, David, um, in way of thankfulness for mercy received or for obtaining uh, what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. So, you know, when you, this is something to think about when we think about duties. Uh, we, we don't live in a time where the, the word duty gets used much in a positive sense. Have you noticed that? Um, you know, the, the, the stress is on choice and freedom and options. Um, and kind of the subject of duty is, is not even brought up much. Although you, you, there are certain contexts where it's unavoidable. Can you think of a few contexts where, the, where duty is something that is required and enforced? Military, right? You know, you do your duty. Yep, David. Providing for your family. Providing for your family, although a lot of folks don't take that duty very seriously, and we let people out of it pretty, pretty uh, quickly or easily. Um, you know, you think about no-fault divorce, for example. Um, there was a time where I think uh, the reason why we, we, we made more effort to keep people together is because there were no other sort of, there were no other institutions to provide for them, and so you know, we need you to do this. We're going we're gonna to keep you accountable. You know, in the church, of course, we try to keep each other accountable as well, but we, we don't have the, the force of the, the you know, the, the government standing behind us. It's strictly the ministerial work of the church, declarative as opposed to any kind of punitive action that we, we have recourse to. Any other maybe places where duty is something uh, still noted and enforced? Uh, yep, we talked about that. Yep, military. I think I think you know something like uh, you know certain kinds of uh, public services like uh, the fire department, you know, police, 
Um, we think about the Hippocratic Oath. You know, you think about the work of a doctor or a nurse. You're supposed to make promises. Yeah. Don't some people look at voting as your duty? Okay. Yeah. You know, it's something that we're yeah we're supposed to participate in. Right. In some countries you can't. <coughs> yeah, in some places you can't. Although, uh, you know, we we talk about getting getting out the vote and that kind of thing, but even so, we're not like uh, like impressing upon people. You know, this. You know, we're not making them take oaths. Whereas I think with these other things like the Hippocratic oath, there's obviously the work of the pastorate. You know, ministry. You know, officers in the church. You know, I don't know why people don't vote. They just think it's not not important. Well, yeah, I think that's the case. A lot of folks don't. Sometimes it's just as well. <laughs> uh, other thoughts on this subject? Okay, so it's made. In other words, the oath is made to God. Uh, before God, um, and uh, voluntarily, out of faith, and conscience of duty. So those are the things, voluntarily, out of faith, and conscience of duty, and with thankfulness. That's an interesting set of things to associate with an oath. I don't know if we, we tend to put those things together. Then the last... Uh, Paragraph, the seventh paragraph here, again delineating the limits and what you can be required to vow. And this has got uh, Catholicism clearly in view. No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the Word of God, or what would hinder any duty therein uh, commanded, or which is not in his own power and for the performance whereof he hath no promise of ability from God, in which respects popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. So, the, you know, we've got two, two parts here. That first sentence, or... Uh, uh, is general, and then they get right into what they had in mind, <laughs> you know, monastic vows. But uh, can you think of maybe uh, something that comes to mind when uh, this matter of uh, making a vow uh, that would hinder you from a duty? Think about, you know, uh, when Jesus uh, criticizes the Jews uh, about Korban. You know, they make a they vow to give a certain amount of money to the uh, temple, and it relieves them of their responsibilities to care for their family. I don't know if you remember that episode. Pretty, pretty strange practice, but apparently it was the case. Um, anything else maybe that comes to mind? Um. The, my father was born in 1911, my mother was born in 1914, so they had rather strict views mm -hmm. of religion. Yeah. And my, my dad said, Molly, 
when you're, I'm not going to take you to church when you're four. I'm going to take you to church when you're five. And you're going to go with your mother and you're going to be quiet. Because I understood. And I said, yes, Daddy. Now, did he go to? No, he was working. He just sat. He was working in our Okay, so he was, he was busy hotel, with it. restaurant and gift shop. It was right next to it. Gotcha. But he took the responsibility of making certain that you got to church uh, to heart. That's a good and thing. And my mother said, if you talk, I'm going to spank you. Well, okay. <laughs> David? Uh, I was just thinking of uh, really narrow it feels like you're in the service, you have the capabilities of destroying an enemy stronghold that would save many lives, but you're going to die. And that you know you're going to die and everybody knows you're going to die. So would that be, would some, I would wonder, there'd be different thoughts on that. I think it would be perfectly honorable. Yeah, I don't think that that, you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the, you know, warfare and what uh, enta that entails. Um, you know, you've got an extraordinary set of circumstances you're dealing with. But, you know, again, you know, it, it's, there's, there is a kind of calculus that you, you, you can engage in. So, for example, you know, think about the firemen who ran into the t Twin Towers when they were on fire. You know, they were family men, most of them. And, um, I, they had to be aware that what they were doing uh, might, you know, make their children orphans. But they did it. They had an oath to, to perform, carry out. You know, it's challenging. Yeah, David. I think the whole COVID shop was a big deal. Yeah. A lot of people had to choose between job, kids, and being alive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them. A lot of people chose to get it just so they could feed their kids. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the things, um, you know, maybe when we think about duress, you know, that applies perhaps to that situation or those circumstances. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Is the idea of duty and vow the whole idea came from a biblical perspective. Well, I think it's something that we see in cultures all over the world. You know, there is there is a biblical background for, you know, in Western society for it, but it's not as though Christians and Jews were the only people who took vows. So it's pretty pretty universal. I was thinking of the, uh, and I, I don't know, if I, I don't want to say mandate, I don't want to use that word. Uh, lightly, but the uh, to feed the widows and the orphans mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of a it's kind of a big deal and it's something that we're not doing uh, so I don't know if that's a when you join the church and you learn these things I don't, that's not talked about very much. The widows and orphans, orphans and providing for them within the church and uh -huh. is it is it a vow? Is it an oath? Is it a oh you know we'll do it if we feel like it? Yeah, well I think that there are a number of interesting kind of things to consider. So within uh, you know the social environment of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Uh, there were no social welfare agencies. 
to, you know, to speak of. Um, your tithes were uh, in part intended to address some of those matters. Um, then uh, when you have the church, you, know, you, ha you have, again, a situation where you have a lot of needy people and there is a lot of work done to make certain those people's needs are, are met. That also led to a, a set of problems, um, people abandoning their own parents and leaving them into the care of the church. You see Paul address that problem. You know, so it's not, a, it's not an easy thing to navigate. So in this, like in our particular situation, uh, we do have a lot of social service agencies. Now the question is, is, should Christians ever use those? Or should people ever use those? Uh, but it is just a different reality. Um, we're, we're not walking down the street. Uh, when we do see people on the street, um, very often there are some extenuating circumstances. Um, whereas in, the, you know, in, in antiquity, uh, could be just about anybody could find themselves in that, that you know, level of need being on the street. I guess the second part of it would be if the church was functioning as it should, would there be any need for social service programs? Yeah. Well, we can take a look at some examples of, of communities that have done that. So there's, just keep in mind there are trade-offs. So the Mormons exercise a tremendous amount of control over the people in the churches or in their wards. So yes, they have their own welfare system, but uh, your tithes are uh, not voluntary. They're going to call you up and say, hey, uh, what'd you do here? Yeah, well, yeah, there's regular, that kind of thing. So it, you know, when we, when we, so there's kind of a, a set of trade-offs if we, if we want to do the deep dive on that and say nobody who is associated with our church should ever be uh, in need uh, of you know, help from secular authorities, then we're going to have to step up a number of things, <laughs> including, um, no, so this is actually what they do in, in the, Mormon, I, in the Mormon, Mormon wards, is they'll sit down with you and take a look at your, they'll do like an audit, every family, and say, uh, this is what you're going to be given. You ready for that? <laughs> yep, Carly. So I'm just curious about the um, monastic vows and the perpetual school life and all the, the three vows you usually take. And um, I guess when I think of people who uh, dedicate themselves to monastic life, I don't know any personally, but I was just talking to someone yesterday who was talking about his aunt who devoted her whole life to living in a convent and served people in New York and did a lot of good. And so while I'm not sure if I completely agree with every aspect of it, I see a lot of good that can come of it, especially for people who don't have that desire to get married. So I'm curious what you think, that what their huge issue is with it. Is it because they, the perception of it being a higher state of perfection? or? Yeah, I think that's it in a nutshell, that these people are more spiritual than the rest of us. Um, you know, so you could say within Protestant, uh, the Protestant world that we have something similar when you talk about, say, parachurch organizations like, say, um, Wycliffe Bible Translators, where people are going to other parts of the world, making great sacrifices, uh, performing, you know, um, important services and service for the ch of the church. But there's not the same sort of, although, you know, be frank, you know, sometimes people do think people who are in Wicca Bible, Bible Translator are more spiritual than the rest of us. 
Yep. Going from a, a legal story view, I think there's an important distinction as to who the uh, contract is made with. So in, in, in the case of Pope's uh, religious, the same, they're, they're making a contract to man or a man yeah. versus a, a contract with God. So you see this division very strongly between Commonwealth and non-Commonwealth countries. Okay. So it, it, in this country, we make a distinction between uh, contract, which is private, and and negligence, which is public. Okay. Okay. And and there's a fascinating article um, by a scholar by the name of Grant Gilmore, which argues for the abolition of contract. It's a, a well worth reading if you're not interested in the law. Uh, but in, in this situation, I think what you see the objection is that you were making a private contract, which would ultimately interfere with your duty to God. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, this, the, the, you know, your statement about the about Commonwealth countries. I'm thinking, thinking about the, the English Commonwealth, Commonwealth countries. So, what about? You know, we have a, a couple of states which refer to themselves as Commonwealths in the United States. So, like Commonwealth of Massachusetts, is Pennsylvania called, refer to itself that way? Commonwealth. They, yes, they are technically a Commonwealth. What makes the difference? I'm. I'm I don't know. So uh, the, the, the difference is, is whether or not you have a, a bicameral house. Uh, it, at this point, it's, it's mostly a distinction without a difference. Okay. But at one point, it made a difference. But yes. We, we have, we, but we do have one state, Louisiana, which is not uh, doesn't follow common law. Okay. It's codified. Oh, huh. interesting. All right. Well, let's... Uh, anything else you want to... You know, yeah. Uh, um, the vows that we make. Well, like Peter, are just like daily vows, I guess, in our minds, but or in our mouths. And how there is reference to thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor or thyself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Peter cursed and sweared. I did not know this man. Yeah. His savior. But also, the you know, I'm at a lot of weddings. I was at a wedding last week. And I hear vows that are unbiblical. Mm-hmm. And um, also, I guess there's a lot of questions is, have come up in my mind. So there's the private thing, the lying. Just lying is a false vow. Kind of. I know it's not a contract, but the, the marriage vow and the church vow is to me something that um, is not as important or taken seriously as it was when I took it. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So you, you know, you vow, it says here you shouldn't vow anything before anybody but God alone. Right. So is a contract a vow before God, you know, a a handshake is a vow. There's all these different kinds of, um, this one about well, Carly was asking the Roman Catholic thing. They were they were commanding people to take vows against the biblical testimony, yeah. and so it's against their conscience. It's against the Word of God. 
It's like the Corbin thing. It's against right. what God has revealed. But those are some of the things in life. So when you think about vows, uh, weddings that are not biblical, are these you know custom-made vows that people are creating for their? Well, like last night, um, there was almost no vow at all. Yeah. I mean, there was a there were promises given that I'm going to take care of you, and it was not flippant or it wasn't bad. Some of them are pretty bad. Yeah, this one wasn't so bad, you know. But I mean, the minister guy was like would have been like me, you know, signing up like online. Yeah, and. Um, so I just and then marriage marriage in the world you know how do we recognize something as a marriage <laughs> you know it's, it's just so different for our, for our Judeo-Christian image that we have image we have it's, it's biblical even in the whole country people that are not Christians still taking Christian vows yeah. whereas in other countries um there, you know, there's so many differences, I guess, in marriage, but vows taken. I guess, for my purposes, how how serious should we take the marriage vow and the and the church vow that we just saw last week? I promise to. In the, in the, you know, well, when you think about the fact that you know, marriage, as the Apostle Paul tells us, is something held in honor by everybody something that's not exclusively uh, the property of the church. Um, there is a, a Christian wedding. There, is a, there are Christian vows. Uh, but at the same time, we acknowledge the right of the civil ma- magistrate to conduct weddings, and we honor those, those uh, marriages, uh, even though they're you know, lacking in certain respects. We, we get marriage licenses. Right. And then we take Christian vows, so it's kind of both. Yeah, we'll give the civil magistrate a minute. Yeah, there's in our you know in our society we have this interesting kind of you know sort of deference to the church, you know. So like when I sign a marriage license, you know, there's uh, you know a uh, place from my signature that is recorded with the town hall, you know. So there's again some interesting overlap. A lot of this stuff, of course, is uh, due to the legacy of the church's, you know, sort of central role in the Western society, but there were wed- there were weddings everywhere. I mean, in cultures all over the all over the world, or marriage, you could say. And you could say that in some situations it might resemble something more like common law, what we, you know, maybe see. Uh, as the case when people have lived together, a couple have lived together for such a long time that they're acknowledged by the state to be in effect married. I think that when Jesus said, let your yay be yay, your nay be nay, he's getting at what I'm getting at here as far as saying, like, if you hand, if you say something, they say, people say, let your word be your bond. Yeah, I think that what Jesus is, is uh, calling into question or, or, or telling us that, that is a, you know, is a problem is, is when we're trying to use God in a way to get our way with other people. Yeah, as leverage. Yeah. Yep. Mark? How many churches actually practice Christian vows for membership today? <laughs> Great question. I know in many sort of non denominational churches, uh, 
is a very loose approach. Um, and not even, you know, you know, practice in some situations. I think I told you all about the guy who sold his church. You know, I was at a, so those of you who don't know the story, I was down in Oklahoma City a couple years ago to speak at a men's event, and turned out this uh, church has, was fairly new, but it was like over, over a thousand members already, or people in attendance, and it, it had broken away from another body uh, over the fact that the pastor uh, had sold it, that, that church to another church. So apparently, uh, the way that particular body had been incorporated, the people who attended the church had zero, you know, say, you know, in, uh, you know, that particular transaction. I'm not even sure how it worked. Whether he had, you know, incorporated it as a for-profit enterprise or something. <laughs> I don't know. But there was, it was just he, he showed up one day at staff meeting and said, "Hey, good news! I sold the church." And then the the, the you know, sort of the leaders of the other church were actually in the next room and they came in and they fired everybody. It's just like a corporate takeover. It was just completely freaky wild. Anyway, then they hired back a bunch of people, except the people who didn't want to stay who started the, the next church. <laughs> but anyway, it was just crazy. Yeah. Just listening to Victor, one of the things that made me think about it was growing up in a number of different churches. I don't ever remember yeah. anybody ever being brought to the front or... Any kind of vows being made, and just the observation that's been an observation of a number of people at Westminster of those who cavalierly leave this church after taking these vows that their life sometimes, I'm not going to say sometimes, the majority of the time demonstrates judgment that seems unusual. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So, yeah. So the last denomination I served, uh, we did have uh, vows, but that denomination is Wesleyan denomination, and it had some interesting kind of uh, uh, similarities to Presbyterianism. So they they had a book of church order, but they didn't call it that. They called it the manual, and it had many of the things that we see in our our book of church order. Uh, and there were some Presbyterians who were involved in in actually the holiness movement in the late 19th century, particularly in the Keswick uh, sort of part of the holiness movement. So are you guys familiar with Calvinist Methodists? Yeah, there actually is a group, Calvinist Methodists. They were in their well. What's that? George Whitfield. Yeah, well, there's that, but this, they were particularly strong in, in, uh, uh, in that part of the United Kingdom. I think uh, Lloyd-Jones might have been that. Yeah, yeah. Wales was where they were centered. That was where they were, they were their strongholds. So anyway, uh, there were uh, Reformed Methodists. So did you say you were talking about Nazarene? Mm-hmm. Did you say they do take vows? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we would bring people up before the congregation in the same way we do here. How similar or different were they? I could go and get them. I, I don't have it with me. <laughs> yeah, I'll look it up. Yeah, because I, I think that they were, they, I don't think they were quite as thorough, if I, if I remember correctly, but they, they were there. Yeah. Conservative Lutheran churches did too. Okay. Yeah, so you came up for them. Right. <clears throat> All right. Well, uh, why don't we move on to chapter 23, and this is uh, of the civil magistrate. So you can see the, there's a logic here 
you know, the vows come before the work of the civil magistrate, so we're going to be thinking about church-state issues now. So number one, the first paragraph, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. So this is a uh, important, obviously, doctrine. Um, helps us to see that our relationship to the state is something that is, uh, you know, ordered by God, and we are to submit to the civil authority in obedience, not just to them, but to those authorities, but to God, because the magistrate is uh, a, a uh, ordained uh, minister, you, uh, but in a particular um, sphere of activity, if you understand what I'm getting at. So service, ministry is just another way of talking about service. Is there anything about this particular uh, statement, this paragraph, though, that makes you, you know, puzzled or prompts a statement? Naturally, this is something that uh, during the um, recent unpleasantness, <laughs> you know, was something that people really wrestled with. Uh, what does that mean to submit to the civil authorities? Uh, what kind of authority does the civil authority have? So I've got a friend, his name is Joseph uh, Granda, and uh, he's, got, he's working on a documentary uh, where he's going to states around the country breaking laws that are ridiculous. So like, you know, you're not allowed in some states to like sit on the top of your refrigerator or something like that, you know, th those kinds of absurdities. And so his, his, basically his question is, is that, is that Romans 13? <laughs> you know, you know am, I, am I violating that if I'm doing this? But anyway, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's meant to be amusing. It's meant to kind of bring out some of the uh, odd sort of uh, leftover laws that no one can remember why we have. <laughs> but that's something to think about uh, in this respect. Now, another thing to think about in this respect is that in our constitutional order, it's not only the uh, right of citizens to sue the government, it's a responsibility to do that under certain conditions. So those conditions would be if those civil authorities are violating, or at least uh, you believe they're violating the Constitution. So that's how we police ourselves. So there, there is an accountability that you know, we can exercise with the people that we're supposed to submit to. It's kind of a kind of an interesting thing to just kind of work through, right? When, when does that moment occur when it's time to challenge? Every election, of course, you could say, <laughs> you know, we, we've got a right to, to change how things are done. But now with the administrative state, which is something uh, that's um, kind of a, a whole different kind of way of operating governmentally than we see with our Constitution, some people talk about the, the uh, a second constitution that's developed in the 20th century um, because of the administrative state and its work. Any any thoughts though? 
Yeah. So how do you come to terms when the, the judicial system is actually violating God's law? Like, well, yeah, for instance, go. in Canada, the judicial system currently have their own opinions and try to figure out loopholes so that they can implement unconstitutional or unbuild a bill of rights law. Like they go against actually the Canadian law because they adhere to like the Liberal Party. They want to keep them in power and do what they want versus actually obeying the law. Yeah, I think that's uh, fruitful, you know, uh, you know, place to go or to, to think about these matters because, you know, we can think of lots of cases where the civil authority uh, overstepped its bounds and uh, either prohibited things that God commands or encourages people to do things that God forbids, you know. Just reading about, remember um, Brother Andrew, God Smuggler? So, um, you know, here's a fellow who is breaking the law all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, smuggling Bibles into communist countries with his little Volkswagen Beetle. Yep, David. Well, from what I understand, at least the American theory of addressing this specific topic is that generally if the SWAT team, for whatever reason, comes around your house, it's probably not going to pay off and be a good idea to, you know, unload on these guys. But... But, because most people say, well, he really wasn't respecting the law. But, we know historically that if a whole region said, you're not coming in here and we have guns dropped, now there's a different take because there is a larger body that's at work. And this comes into the mindset that in the, as the Christian um, kingdom has grown, this new American system, we're not looking at leaders like maybe some did in the past. We're actually the collective key. Whereas in the past, there was somebody set up and we were part of the system. So while we have, we're, we're, while we are the collective key, we vote to establish magistrates who we agree to establish laws that we will obey. Well, there's a, a very strong case, I think, that's been made uh, for uh, not thinking of this as a new thing. In other words, this goes back a long, long way. So, uh, Vindicii Contra Terranos, uh, which is uh, a, a work that was originally uh, published in France during the uh, Huguenot persecution, um, which makes the case based on biblical understanding of the way covenants worked, that even in Israel, this is the way things worked. Um, so, you know, I'm not equipped to go into that in any great depth, but I think that, you know, there is also the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. So there are, there, there's, I think, in the history of the world, lots and lots of uh, thoughtful, uh, writing on the subject of what do you do when you when you're got an emperor like Nero, who's just nut job, you know what do you do then, you know so right now I'm I'm working my way through um, Marcus Aurelius's meditations, and you know here's an emperor Roman emperor who's reflecting upon earlier emperors and condemning them because they were lawless like Caligula and Nero. And so there was a, even within uh, 
the context of the Roman Empire, there was a sense in which even the emperor uh, just can't do anything he wants to do. <laughs> so there's pushback. There's push now, you know, that can lead to people losing their lives, like Seneca. So, uh, but at least there, but even in those situations, people didn't feel like, you know, we're dealing with, you know, even when we recognize his divinity, we're not saying he can do anything. Yeah, yeah. I have to ask, so in a situation in the new government that we find ourselves in, in Canada and America, I have to ask, because we're talking about duty, oath, and vow, when does it become our duty to buck these people? Yeah, I think that's something that you don't... Yeah, that's, I agree. It's not something you, you run to, to rush to, to that conclusion, but at the same time, it's an open option. It's something that can uh, present itself as something you need to do. So, and you know, it's happened in different parts of the world. I, I reflect on, you know, what happened in the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, in that revolution, you know, um, Solzhenitsyn said, if the people had just stood up and just beat the pit, those guys up and, uh, you know, not just allowed themselves to get pushed around the way they did, a lot of really bad stuff wouldn't have happened, you know, that did, that did eventually happen. The trick, though, is just knowing the moment. The people knew their power. Yeah, and, and stepping up. And, and then there's always a risk that maybe you're misreading the situation. Maybe you're overreacting. So it's, it's something you have, to be, you have to be circumspect about. I may not have all the information. I may not understand exactly what's going on. Um, but anyway, it's, it's part of, I think, good citizenship to hold the magistrate accountable. You know, when we talk about rule of law, uh, the point is, is that the civil magistrate is executing the law, but if the civil magistrate is violating the law, then the civil magistrate is a criminal, just behaving in a criminal way. So Mark and then David. Yeah. Biblically, for the most part, when people are sinful, unrepentant, their civil magistrate turns against them, or at least a civil magistrate comes against them. God uses civil magistrates, meaning other nations or empires, to perform his judgment on people. One of the only times that I can remember of people turning to God, becoming more righteous, is um, with Peter's um, sermon at Pentecost. Thousands of Jews turning to him, but then the others persecuting him. And for them, the answer was fleeing, not fighting. And by fleeing, he brought the civil magistrate of the Romans against them to destroy the wicked that were persecuting Mm -hmm. them. So I think it's not always that you stand up and fight. Yeah. It's sometimes that you flee right. and let God do what he's going to do with those powers that he's given the sword. He has given the sword to them, and it's not just a justice system. It's also, let's call it an armed forces system that brings about his justice on the earth. Yeah, I think that's, that's hard to deny. You know, we have plenty of biblical examples of, for that very thing. Uh, and then at the same time, there's a sense in which the, the sin itself contains its own punishment. 
when God hands someone over to their wickedness, um, they reap the, the bad fruit, you know, the thorns and the thistles and the whirlwind. They get what they have coming to them it's, that's sort of baked in, you could say, to the way the world is made. Like you think about what's going on in China right now, it's been remarkable to see. Uh, have, you, have you heard the news about the downward uh, estimates of their population? Pretty striking stuff. Uh, and what you, when you dig into it a little bit, so I saw a news report from Australia, and of course they're kind of very nervous about this because they're very tied to the Chinese economy. And they're like, wow, this is going to really affect us in a bad way. But, uh, I mean, they're just demolishing entire uh, sections of, this, of, of cities because there's uh, all these empty apartment buildings. And, and, and it was because people have been lying uh, for the longest time about... For example, um, your father dies, but he's getting a government, you know, uh, Social Security payment every month. I don't know what they call it in China. You just don't report that he died. <laughs> so again, there's, they, they think somebody is there, but there's nobody there. Um, people um, report, uh, you know, having children who've not had children in order to get, again, these different uh, benefits. Government officials who are uh, local officials who have a vested interest in sort of pumping the numbers up because that means there's more money that's distributed to the region. So you have all the, the, the lying that went on in, for that reason. And so we're talking about millions and millions of people who don't exist that we thought existed. <laughs> and then, of course, you've got the one-child policy, which was really at the heart of all of that. Um, so now the place is like... Uh, it's kind of teetering. They're, they're getting more and more nervous by the day. But, you know, the, the connection I'm making here is that their own, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the wickedness of, that was sort of fused throughout the system is uh, the reason why they're in the situation that they're in. You know, and I'm not trying to, you know, nail down any one thing, although, the, you know, the one-child policy was a big part of that. So um, I think the whole world was kind of caught off guard with this pandemic, and we got fooled really good for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. But um, before your Revolutionary War, the, the American colonies were getting choked pretty hard. They started an underground economy, and it was it was the Brits fighting against that underground economy, which actually started the war. Yeah. they they had the colonies had had enough and started trying to kick them. Off. So yeah. I think now. The duty isn't maybe to fight the government. The duty is to uh, build a base for which, if you eventually have to do it, then you have a you have a solid base. So you yeah, have all the businesses now that are starting up that are attached to people rather than to government. Mm -hmm. Everyone's growing their own farm stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot of fascinating stuff going on all over the place. I agree. Anyway, um, other thoughts. It's a, it's a matter that's fraught with a number of challenging um, things that we have to deal with and, and sort of assess and, and make judgments about. Let me just uh, read this next um, paragraph, and I think we've got a few minutes so we can reflect on it a little bit. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate when called thereunto. 
and in managing whereof as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth, so that for that end they may lawfully, now under the New, uh, New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasion. So this is a pretty com capacious statement intended to cover a range of things. Um, there are, of course, Christian sects that withdraw from uh, this kind of uh, work, don't get involved in government service at all. Here we're told that this is something that's, that's acceptable and uh, something important. And that, uh, and then also the, you know, the prospect of uh, a pacifist Christian sect is being addressed here as well. When we think about, say, Quakers or Shakers or groups like that uh, who uh, forgo on grounds of conscience military service. But here we're told there are just conditions under which a war may be waged. So uh, Presbyterians uh, are known to be a, a fighting bunch. You know, we've got a long reputation of being the fighters. Um, you know, the old joke, or that's not really a joke, it's actually true. You owe your freedom as an American to Presbyterians with guns. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, that's just true. Yep. So if it was me, I'm just a little me, it does seem that when it says it is lawful for Christians to accept this duty, it seems like in this long history of just governing, uh, one of the words of uh, our forefather George Washington, government is like a fire. And if it's not controlled, it will consume everything. And it seems like I would like to have the wording, it, it should be the duty at least for the Christian community to engage. Well, if you want to propose something that we can take up as a session, that we can take the, to the General Assembly. <laughs> There's been so many people, millions of people killed by absolute derelicts in these positions, and, the whole, and a large swath of sects of Christian communities avoiding it, it seems like wow, can you not see that we need our community to like engage this one little thing here? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm with you completely. And um, I think um, we can't, you know, compel any particular person to uh, serve in, in that capacity, unless the, the, we're talking about really extraordinary circumstances. Um, but uh, I think that there are people who are called to that kind of work, and I think we need to honor those people and encourage them. Yep. I just think the church in, the, in America and around the world will be lost in confusion until they find covenant theology. Yeah. yeah. When they find covenant theology, then they find the Old Testament church and they find the New Testament church. Mm -hmm. And they don't divide the two, and they see the kingdom of God being given to this new people, the Gentiles, and part of actually... Um, discipling the nations and teaching them to do what is right is to take the sword mm -hmm. as a part of the civil magistrate that God has given as a minister and to minister his law appropriately. And until they get there, they're going to live in this dichotomy of this right. world that ends up with that's bad stuff mm -hmm. and that's not the New Testament church and they just can't tie the two together. Yeah. And the church will be forever impotent in the world until it finds 
the correct doctrines that surround covenant theology. Yeah, it's interesting here too that the, ter the word uh, piety is employed in this uh, statement, maintain piety, justice, and peace. Pietistic or pietism often is a way of thinking about you know, Christian faith in a way that withdraws from certain kinds of things. One of those things being you know, working in the government, or at least explicitly working in the government as a Christian. Um, but there is a kind of quietist way of thinking about piety. But here, uh, it's one of the sort of the one of the responsibilities of a of a civil magistrate to maintain piety and justice and peace. But we don't think of uh, piety very often when we think about the responsibilities of the magistrate. I think we talk about uh, justice and peace, but piety is also in in this picture, which I think implies that there is a theological understanding of how, how a society is ordered and that it's our obedience to God to live according to the laws of a, of a well-ordered, pious regime. Yeah, Just on that note, piety is really the foundation that you can build a just and peaceful society on. Right. If you don't have piety, you won't have much justice and no peace. Yeah, and it's good to keep in mind, too, the origin of the term from pius, um, which in, the, in antiquity uh, would imply or was, it was something that was very broad in its application. So it was, your, uh, it was the acknowledgement and the uh, paying back of your debts, meaning that there are some goods that you enjoy uh, because of your parents, because of the local government, you know, the city fathers and stuff like that. And then, of course, God or the gods of your pagan. So piety was something that had a social character in the, in the ancient world. Eusebio is the Greek word that it means the same thing. It's much, it was something that included everything. Anyway, well, we've gone over and... Uh, We'll be back at this next week, so let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to reflect on these uh, weighty matters. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to think uh, clearly and uh, when it comes about, particularly as it relates to our, our relationship to the state, help us to be faithful to you and to uh, fulfill our responsibilities as citizens and as uh, disciples of Christ, uh, keeping in mind that sometimes uh, it's a challenge for us to know uh, what to do when two sources of authority may be in conflict or seem to be. Help us uh, in those moments, Lord, or at those times to serve you first and uh, honor your uh, will for us as a church and as individuals. In Christ's name, amen.